You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It's now 22 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock. It is our Monday date with uh, Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Hello, Chris. Hello. We've got uh, fascinating questions coming in. And let me kick off with this one before um, Ivan underscore blessing complains because he's been asking. He's even tagged his previous question. And he says, mm-hmm. um, I really want to hear the doctor on this one. As electric fish can generate more than 500 volts, um, is there any way we can get a dam full of these fish and then connect our electricity? People used to uh, drive horses into rivers where the uh, electric eels hung out in order to avoid stepping on them themselves because Mm -hmm. it's quite true. They can generate considerable voltages. 500 volts is not beyond the realms of possibility, maybe even 800 volts for a big electric eel. The way they do it, though, is to use modified cells, a bit like muscle cells in your body, which are themselves electrical, and they stack them up, one connected to the next, connected to the next, a bit like cells arranged into a big, long battery. And the tiny voltage of each of the cells summates over the length of a really big, long fish to make considerably high voltages. But that potential difference is between the nose of the animal and its tail. Mm. So in order to connect them all up, you would have to persuade the animals to <laughs> provide their voltage. And the, the actual current that would flow through the animal, it, it, it's a big voltage, but it doesn't flow for very long. So you'd need lots of them and have them all connected up in parallel. And then you'd also get DC. And DC is not so useful as AC. AC. So you'd have to have a way of connecting that to AC current to, to put into the uh, electric grid. So I'd say great idea certainly physiologically possible (laughs) would it be practical probably not and you'd probably find it was quite painful in the process because inevitably you you would find that you got uh, a few a few snaps and zaps along the way when you try and set it up (laughs) yeah it would be the occupational hazard of trying to do that (laughs) thanks for the question there let's go to tabang in sibuking next as we're taking your calls this afternoon on 011-883-0702 which scientific phenomenon uh, would you like chris to elaborate or explain to you 011-883-0702 hello tabang how are you, love? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine, man. Uh, kindly ask, Chris, the uh, uh, alcohol content in an, uh, in a, a, a beer, a bottle of beer, mm. uh, let's say 660, that's 5%. In a 50 litre, that's 5%. I, I, I don't understand it. How, how does it happen? How do I calculate it? And uh, the second one, let me say I'm consuming a, a bottle of a beer that co- a, a consists of 5% of alcohol. By consuming six, it means that uh, I, I, I'll, be, I'll be having 30% of alcohol. I just need that explanation. <laughs> how, how do I calculate it? Yes, yes. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I can, see where, I can see where this confusion has crept in because um, the percentage is the proportion of what is in that bottle that is alcohol. Mm. Now, you use 5%. That's, it. That's an easy number to work with. So let's stick with that. 5% alcohol means five parts in 100 of what is in the bottle are alcohol. So in other words, five one-hundredths, which is cancelled down to one-twentieth of the bottle is alcohol. So if you took a bottle of beer, about one-twentieth of what's in there is the alcohol and uh, nineteen-twentieths um, is water. So if you measure the volume, say that bottle is a litre, then you've got one twentieth of a litre is the total amount of alcohol. So if you drunk 20 of those, 
then you would have drunk a liter of pure alcohol and mm. you'd be dead. Mm. But <laughs> if, if you just drink one, you have drunk one twentieth of a liter, assuming it's a liter bottle of beer, which is alcohol, and that would mean that five percent of what you drank was alcohol. And that's that's where I think you're getting confused. The percent means the proportion. So if you take one mouthful, 5% or one twentieth of what's in your mouth at any one time, that's alcohol, but the rest is just water and beer flavours. Does that hopefully help to explain it? Tabang, does that help? Okay. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks a lot. You know, because we see that all the time, 5%, and then you have spirits that are like, uh, what, 63% or much, much Some higher. Them, yeah. Yeah. That's the the, quite the idea is to give you the insight into how strong it is so you can mm. then work out, well, if it's not as strong, if it's 5%, then you've got to drink in volume terms a lot more to get the same total amount of alcohol because the thing that actually has the effect on your brain and uh, impairs you mm. is the total amount of alcohol you drink not the proportion of alcohol that you drink so if you had one sip of a hundred percent alcohol it doesn't mean suddenly you're a hundred percent alcohol it means that of that sip a hundred percent of it was alcohol but if you had a mouthful of that a hundred percent of the mouthful would be alcohol if you had a bottle of that a hundred percent of the bottle would be alcohol so that's why we use percentages because mm. it allows you to, to make that judgment about how strong the thing is that you're drinking and then you can work out roughly how many of those you can have and still remain okay and at what point, to drink safely at what point do you die <laughs> at what levels <laughs> well um, it, the thing is, it depends what it does to you, because if it makes you fall asleep and, and drop off uh, out of the window or something, you know, because people have accidents when yes, they drink too yes, much, don't they? Yes. So you could say you don't need very much to make yourself a bit in encumbered and impaired and <laughs> you fall over and, and hit your head. Mm. But in terms of um, alcohol damage, there are two ways to damage yourself. There is a one-off big binge where you overdo it, you impair your consciousness, and this can mean people choke on their own vomit, for example. It's awful, but that happens. Um, and, and it causes acute alcohol poisoning deaths as well when people overdo it in one go. And that, you know, that leads to a lot of loss of life. But by far and away, the greatest damage done by alcohol is irresponsible long-term usage. We all enjoy a drink. Many of us enjoy a drink. And we do it responsibly. So in other words, don't drink to excess. Don't drink to mm. drunkenness. And if you do, don't do it too often. But the people who sustainably drink a lot of alcohol day after day after day they may get to a point where they don't feel it affects them at all. And, and that's because the body adapts to cope mm. with the extra alcohol. But what it does do is continue to place a big um, poisoning effect on your liver. So over time, the toxic mm. effect does build up and you get liver damage, but you can also damage other organs, including your nervous system, but especially your heart as well. So it's better to drink a little bit and have a few days off between drinks and do not binge to, to drunkenness, or at least don't do it too often because right. that does damage too. Yeah. Let's go to Andrew in Hamanskral. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Aza. Hello. Uh, Dr. Um, there's somebody who works at one of the leading pharmacies in the country, yeah? and she claims that uh, the sanitizer that, that we use on our hands can actually damage our fingerprints. Is there any truth in that? Oh. Wow. I've not come across that. So the hand sanitizer damages your fingerprints? Because mm, it's got, what, 70% no, I... alcohol? There's, uh, well, at least 70%. To be I've not come across that claim. Mm -hmm. um, the the alcohol that's in a lot of these things, yes, it's about 60 or 70% alcohol in some of them. The way it works is that organisms which have around them an oily bag or an oily coat, and certain viruses have this, bacteria have this, some fungi have this, the alcohol damages that oily coating and destroys the infection. 
Not all infections have that, though. So there are some types of virus, for example, that do not respond to these alcohol hand rubs. And norovirus, which causes diarrhea and vomiting, horrible thing, that is totally unaffected. Rhinoviruses that cause the common cold, they are completely unaffected. Adenoviruses that cause colds, completely unaffected. The best way to clean your hands up, actually, is just soap and water. In mm. clinical trials, people have actually done tests and shown that, that uh, running water and soap is superior, both in terms of cleanliness, but also very, very beneficial in terms of cost to alcohol hand rubs. So soap and water, very, very good. No evidence, I don't think, that unless you really took it to extremes and, and wrecked your skin with excessive use of, of some kind of hand rub and perhaps a, obsessive hand washing and so on, that you're going to long-term damage your fingerprints. You might dry your skin for a while, but uh, certainly you're not going to get through to the basement layer of cells that is what gives you the pattern on the end of your finger. So I think you'd be okay. All right. Andrew, thank you for that question. Thank you very much. Thank you. Tabo, you've got a question about feet. Yes. Hi, Azza. How are you? Good. Welcome, Tabo. Fine. I was just curious, asking Dr. Chris, like, why is it like when your feet are so cold and then you suddenly get into warm water and the water just suddenly feels like it's over 100 degrees? <laughs> yep. <clears throat> okay, I thought you were going to ask yep. about the pins and needles that you sometimes get, but that's when you've been extremely cold, <laughs> and then you move it into cold water. I have a, dis- a distinct memory when it snowed in Soweto. I think I must have been three years old or something, back in the early 80s, somewhere there. And uh, it snowed, and we made a snowman. We still have the picture. And then we went inside because it was so cold, and then we put our hands in uh, warm water. It was warm, not hot. But sure, the pins and needles after that, I'll never, I, I, I can still vividly remember that. But Tabo's saying it feels like the temperature of that water is far hotter. Yep. The reason is that the way the nervous system works is it's all relative. Uh, you are not so interested in absolute temperatures as how things are changing. Because arguably, it's the change that really tells you more information than what the absolute temperature is. So what I mean by this is best exemplified by describing an experiment that everyone here can try for themselves. If you get a bowl of hot water, not too hot, but hot enough that you think that feels hot, and a bowl of cold water, say icy water or water you've had in the fridge, and you put uh, another bowl in the middle which has just got water which is halfway between the two, so sort of tap water, room temperature, Mm. and you put one hand in the really hot water, and the other hand in the really cold water, keep it in there for as long as you can bear in the cold water and and at least a minute or so in the hot water until you've got used to the temperature. And you think, yep, okay, it was cold when I first put my hand in, I've got used to it. It was hot when I first put my hand in, I've got used to it. Now, transfer both hands simultaneously from either the hot water or the cold water into the middle pot, which has got the tap water in it, and you will get a really surprising result, which is one hand will be saying, my goodness, that's boiling, because relative to the cold water, that cold to the freezing cold water, that tap water is now hot. Mm. And relative to the hot water, that tap water is now freezing cold. So Mm. one hand will tell you it's freezing, the other hand will tell you it's boiling, and it will be the opposite hand to the one that was in either the hot water or the cold water. And this is because the nervous system is signaling what the the relative differences are. And relative changes are far more meaningful to us and can signal far more information. Being sensitive to how things are changing and at what rate gives you far more information about your environment than just what the absolute level of temperature is.
And that's why the nervous system responds in the way that we've just heard, which is, you know, when you put your feet, which have got very cold, into a bath that you would normally say, well, this is jolly nice, mm. because relative to how warm your feet were feeling before, that water feels boiling. And so you get a huge flurry of nerve activity firing off from the nerves that signal high temperature. And as you get used to the water, the nerves do what's called adaptation and they get less interested. They, they stop responding because the water temperature is not changing. Right. And that's why you then get used to it because the barrage of nerve activity was the nerve cells saying, this is a change in temperature. But as they get to the same temperature... Uh, that the surroundings are at, then they stop firing so much. And that's you <laughs> adapting and you stop saying it doesn't feel so hot anymore. Oh, that can be applied to so many things in life. As you get used to it, you just lose interest, <laughs> you know. It's no, you do. It's, it's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. Smells are exactly the same. Yes. And the people per perennially phone this program and say, why, why do farts smell worse when they're someone else's? <laughs> and, you know, but, you know, you get used to the smell of a fart mm -hmm. because basically it initially triggers your nose very, very powerfully. It's not that the smell suddenly goes away, it's that your nose becomes much less interested in the smell and the receptors that were firing off a barrage of information saying there's a very nasty smell here, yeah. they lose interest. And the if you can think of it as the nerve cells uh, almost get tired of firing so fast, so they, they slow down their rate of discharge, which means you then start to focus on other things. And the reason the nervous system is wired up like that is if we were continuously paying attention to everything equally all the time, mm. we would find it very hard to focus on what's important. If there was an emergency unfolding in front of you, how would you discriminate the emergency signals from the background chatter that's going on? Whereas if you make everything just damp down over time and lose interest, novelty is what gets our attention and that keeps us safe in the long run. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, thank you for that question. Let's go to uh, David in St. Churian. David? Hi there, Zania. Hello, Dr. Chris. Sometimes Hi. the discussion Hi, between husbands and wives, you have to bring your professional platform. <laughs> that uh, discussion like between husbands and wives. Of these things because, you know. Uh, <laughs> so my question is, Dr. Chris, that every time my daughter displays any behavior that's got any negative connotation to it, right? <laughs> my lovely, dearest wife, says that, you know, that's a typical brand behavior. Your family's like that. And I was like, but my family's Cape Town. And you know what? She's exposed to more of your family up here and the dynamics of that. And I was like, uh, is it inherent that the child can pick up something of stubborn behavior uh, just genetically or in the DNA? Uh, is that possible at all? Or must a child be in the presence of people to have that in effect? Um, the child's yes, David, that's such a fascinating question. I know someone who wasn't raised by their father, he only met his father in his early 20s, right? But yes. they do things the same. Super neat. The father's super, super neat. So is he. Um, there are a couple of other traits where we first met him and he thought, what? Why? There's so many qualities that are similar to this person uh, that he that didn't raise him. Zero. Didn't raise him at all. So, um, good news for me at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so, Chris, how do we explain that? There's uh, a huge amount of nature and a huge amount of nurture that goes on. By nature, we're talking about genetics, and people have done quite comprehensive analyses, not on humans so much as other animals, but you can prove that there are behavioral traits that tend to be associated with the way you're genetically wired. And the best of these is an experiment on silver foxes in Russia, where for generations researchers have bred these foxes and they've bred them selectively according to temperament. 
and they have been able to breed foxes which are extremely docile and they've on the other hand bred foxes which are extremely aggressive and very very concerned and worried about any kind of approach of, of a person so they're very very skittish and those behaviours appear to be heritable because the offspring of those foxes have the same behaviours as the parents do. So there's a healthy helping of nature in both nature and human nature because genes control how your body puts itself together. That includes the brain and the nervous system and probably therefore influences to an extent how different parts of the brain that do different jobs are and are concerned with temperament and behaviour wire themselves up and other things more peripherally around the body such as uh, testosterone levels and how sensitive you are to testosterone or other fight and flight and stress hormones for example but then superimposed on that is probably the more dominant effect which is nurture which is the environment in which you're reared has a very profound effect on how your brain develops especially when you're little and and therefore how you behave in subsequent environments because when we're born our brain is very much a blank canvas and although there is sort of a rough map of how things should work on there it is your upbringing the love you receive from your parents, your, your nurturing, how you're brought up, educated, your life's experiences and how you interact with, behave with and uh, get on with those around you that moulds you into the individual you become. So therefore, there will be, to a certain extent, some characteristics that you inherit. But the profound and strongest influence here is going to be those characteristics imbued into you by the people around you and the environment that you grow up in. And so uh, while it's true that you will see some things running in families, behaviour-wise, the vast majority of those things are going to be imbued in you from the environment and therefore the family unit. So it's not genetic, it's what's called a phenocopy, where you get something that masquerades as though it's inherited, but it's because of the environment rather than purely a genetic thing. Yes. So, David, I'm curious, what are you going to say to your wife to settle this? As you say, now you have the, yeah. the thinking and uh, the thoughts of a scientist. I'm going to tell her after Dr. Chris's crystallized approach to this matter, you know what, uh, I will accept a few of these negative traits, but not all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't just accept all of it. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Chris. Thanks, Anna. Thanks a lot, David. <laughs> uh, at least he's willing to go back to her and tell her the full thing. Uh, let's go to uh, Rudy in Dorenfontein. Hello, Rudy. Uh, hi there, Tanya. Yes, welcome. Thanks, Rudy. Thank you so much. Uh, very interesting show. I like particular. I never knew that uh, the smell of farting can have a sophistication in the uh, in the uh, smelling uh, senses. Mm. Uh, when you <laughs> <laughs> may be more able to some fart smell than the other. <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> so, uh, so, Ava, thank you so much. Interesting show. It's uh, been a long time. I'm Rudy from UK. You hope you can remember me. Oh, yes, Rudy, uh, yes. The train of pain. Mm. Yeah, so unfortunately, during this time, we can't have it. It was so exciting to always have it. But I'm, I'm thinking of an idea, Ava. Mm. I think we need to have a science brain of brain. And I tell you what, where I'm coming from there. Uh, I think you've had uh, you've had this all the time, and we all listen advently to the to the to the naked scientists. But we never thought we have the brain of brains where we ask general questions and prop people. But I think I think it'll be very interesting to have a science brain of brains, and then <laughs> and you can have different even for the kidney, where 
where perhaps Chris can ask very basic questions, not really going into the length and depth that he has got, but just into uh, into very basic questions on science, brain of, of brain. Before I make my, my question... Oh, well, Rudy, tell you what, we'll call you next week Monday because we're out of time, um, and we'll make your priority next week Monday. Is that all right? Oh, no, no, that's, that's absolutely perfect. No, no problem. Okay, whatsoever. let me put you back to, to my producer and say hi to your son. Thank you. I will do so. Thanks, Abba. Thank you. That's Rudy. And we've met Rudy several times at the Discount Brain of uh, 702. And I guess he wants to see its evolution. And Chris, you've inspired that potential evolution. And it would involve <laughs> inspiring young minds. <laughs> sounds like I have to come up with some good questions for them. Yeah, yeah. Like that lot. <laughs> um, so we'll bring Rudy back next week, Monday, because we are out of time. And there is a question about heartbreak that we're going to save as well, because I suspect lots of people would probably be able to relate and are curious about why this thing happens um thank you very much it's a pleasure and have a time great flies week ahead fun, doesn't i know it? Yeah, and you. such cool questions <laughs> yeah cool questions brilliant yeah, okay take have care a great week bye-bye. ahead that's the naked scientist